I'm Lauren DeYoung Shulman, and you're listening to the Women in NatSec podcast miniseries on the national security workforce. Why is it the people behind the policy are so often an afterthought in national security strategy? What has to change to bridge today's national security talent with tomorrow's challenges? Tune in for big and small ideas from experts across the field. Here is Sina Bigley, the Associate Director for Cyber and Intel Policy Center at RAND and a Senior Policy Researcher at RAND and a former colleague of mine from, I won't say how many years back, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lauren. Uh, so the primary reason I wanted to have Sina on was to talk about uh, some research that he has, she has done, a recent publication she's done on security clearance reform. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, when was the first moment when it really struck you that you work in national security? This is the national security space, and you are somehow in, in the middle of it. Oh, wow. Uh, the first time that struck me, that's hard. Um, there have been so many moments where you kind of realize uh, you're in the middle of history and and big decision making. Um, so I, I I think throughout my career I've had sort of those quick moments. Um, certainly walking into the Pentagon was one uh, post 9/11. Um, you know, a year and a half or so after 9/11, um, first time walking in there, just realizing uh, what was there and as a future workplace, um, what that meant to to be working there um, in in the nation's defense. So that probably was one of those those first times where I really realized I was part of this national security system. So you have worked in a variety of functions in national security and the Department of Defense and other parts of the uh, national security interagency and even overseas, and have seen a lot about what this workforce is good at and bad at. And I'm curious, from your perspective, what is it that makes it so great? Like, what is it that made you want to be a part of it and uh, in many ways be a, a supporter and defender of it? But like, what was it that has struck you repeatedly? Like, this is a really unique and special group of people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, what I've seen time and again is the national security workforce as a whole is a committed, trusted group of people who, for the most part, are motivated by the mission of serving the country and making it as safe as it can be. So we're certainly not motivated by the money. Um, we're not motivated by you know accolades because most of the time you know what people do in national security um, uh, often is unseen uh, or they can't talk about it. Um, and so really, it's the motivation of the, the mission of making the country as safe as it can be. And whether the military or civilian, it, intelligence or law enforcement, contractor or government employee, I found that overall, there's a real commitment to doing what needs to be done to protect the nation. And I think being surrounded by that, people that are similarly motivated um, to do that is uh, exciting and it's something that kind of keeps you going on those very, very long uh, days um, and, and some less than, uh, you know, sort of an episode of 24 exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned the uh, I mean the fact that so much of what we do in national security is behind closed doors. You don't get to talk about it, and even to the degree that anyone is talking about it, certainly the the folks down in the lower levels, they're not getting 
recognition or even necessarily being able to put some of their successes on their resume in any way. So there, there ends up being, I think, a lot of misconception about, you know, what is it that we do every day? And as a result, the you know, American people's understanding of national security workforce and the folks who make it up uh, are from TV or from movies, anything from like Homeland to, as you mentioned, 24. And those are interesting portrayals in some cases. Um, but I, I'm curious, it, what have you heard before or what do you think that people don't understand about the national security workforce that might be important for them to, to grasp? Uh, so two related points, I think, on that one is just just what you said. You know, it uh, it, it sounds exciting. And you, you hear, you know, I've worked at the Pentagon. I did counterterrorism things, you know, all of that. Uh, a friend of mine recently said uh, to me, you know, you're uh, you're such a a rock star or badass or something like that. And I laughed and I said, sure, one paper cut at a time. Yep. <laughs> like that's what I'm doing, right? Like that's it. Um, so, uh, but it's true. It, it is important work. It's, it's not always glamorous, but it needs to happen. Um, it needs to be done. Uh, but I think, and this, you know, goes into sort of the, the fray that exists lately, but I think that there's been a misconception by some that the national security workforce whatever their role is, um, is necessarily politically loyal, right, to the administration that's in power. And as you and I both know, that's far from the truth. Mm -hmm. All civilians and military personnel um, take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, right, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that's an oath of loyalty to the Constitution, not a political party. Um, so when an administration changes, no matter the political party of the administration, the individual is not a political appointee. It's their job to advise or to execute the policy of that new administration, regardless of political party. And then, of course, if they don't feel comfortable doing that for whatever reason, then there are ways to leave public service. But if they stay in and continue to serve, um, then their role is to, you know, execute the policy of the administration. Uh, but there are also clear rules about permissible political activity as a member of the national security workforce. And it was, I think for me, what's challenging and has been with a lot of the dialogue on sort of every side when you talk about um, things that are politically tinged lately is having been a member of the national security workforce, having worked for multiple administrations and multiple political parties, I took that very seriously um, that my job was to serve the nation um, regardless of political affiliation. And and I know, you know, my, my national security colleagues generally felt that same way. We felt like um, that's what was important to us in, in serving the administration. I remember talking to one political appointee who asked, you know, me, um, would I ever, you know, serve uh, if the other party got elected in, uh, in the election at one point when there was an election going on? And I just looked at them probably the same way they looked at me, like they had three heads and said, <laughs> yeah, you know, of course. Of course. And they said, how could you? And I thought, because I'm serving the nation, just like someone in the military serves whichever president is in power and whatever political party is in power. I think national security civil servant professionals um, take that, that same oath and responsibility very seriously. Yeah, I think there's a... a some of it is just a problem people don't quite realize that the scope and scale of the national security workforce such that if all of us suddenly decided like at, at the end of every election nope we're just going to get up and walk away like that would be a massive undertaking to replace them um and that and the the kind of system that you need to have in order to support president after president administration after administration it simply doesn't work if you're treating this as a as a political entity um 
So kind of related to that, or maybe stemming from that, what are the, some, some of the greatest challenges you see in either recruiting or retaining and developing the national security workforce that you think that the nation needs for its current national security challenges? Well, so critical to having an effective national security workforce, and this gets to one of my you know, pet rocks, as you know, I'm working in the government, uh, particularly in, in some of my last positions in government, um, is to have a trusted national security workforce. Mm -hmm. So trusted from a you know, protection of national secrets perspective, uh, not, again, we were talking about political loyalty. So this is a workforce that will reliably protect national secrets uh, that warrant protection. They are the protectors and of, an, of America's secrets. Um, and that's a workforce that's also vetted properly and whose trustworthiness is verified regularly to ensure they don't cause grave damage to the United States. Um, I mean, just in the last decade, we've had some damaging and in some cases tragic examples of the system failing. I mean, in, in 2009, there was Nadal Hassan, Army Major, who fatally shot 13 people and injured 30 more right in Fort Hood. Uh, Chelsea Manning, of course, as an Army sergeant in 2010, Edward Snowden as an NSA uh, subcontractor in 2013, when they both leaked vast amounts of classified information through different flora. Um, you had, you know, Aaron Alexis with the Washington Navy Yard, who shot, uh, fatally shot 12 people. And then more recently, there have been cases uh, of national security trust being betrayed. Um, you have the, the former U.S. Air Force tech sergeant, Monica Witt, who's accused of spying for Iran. And as recently as February, a U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant, Christopher Hassan, um, accused of planning wide-scale domestic terrorist attacks from his work computer. Uh, and the challenge is the U.S. government's security clearance and vetting process granted each of these individuals a clearance uh, mm -hmm. before they acted, right? And so it's looking at that system um, that we're all relying on to sort of protect us um, from the outside and the inside and looking at that system and saying, what can be done better, um, more efficiently, more effectively, more reliably. Um, so we have maybe not none because you may, you know, you'll never be fail safe, but less uh, instances of this happening, more detection and more reliable sort of um, trust factors that go into the very people that we rely on uh, to keep America safe and to keep those secrets just that secret. So you have studied this, I mean, just from a personal perspective as you were in government, but also since you've left and uh, work, become, joined the research field, you've studied this extensively and have uh, both put forward some of your own recommendations, but also been able to comment on some of the latest things that have come out of both this administration, also the Hill, uh, that would are ostensibly meant to help solve some of the challenges associated with having a trusted and cleared workforce. So... Um, you know, understanding that there's not a simple solution to that. What are some of the big ideas or small ideas being put forward right now uh, that you think are the most promising in terms of you know, having a trustworthy workforce, but also doing so in a way that doesn't completely slow down the entire process of bringing in, retaining, or clearing the kind of per people that you actually want to serve in government, which does not always match up with the, the most easily clearable folks that you would want to have involved in national security issues? Yeah. Uh, so there's a, a few points to unpack in that. Um, so, you know, the failures that I mentioned, they obviously indicate there's something, multiple things not working in the system, uh, both in the process of granting individuals a clearance 
and in ensuring that the assessment of that individual's trustworthiness worthiness shouldn't be modified over time and their clearance taken away uh, because something has happened to make them potentially either a threat to national security information or, um, or personnel. So what needs to happen is a reform and modernization to the system, right? An overhaul. Um, the timeline for the process of the initial vetting of individuals and granting of security clearance has historically been a long one um, with the backbone of the system dating back to World War II uh, with some minimal updates over the years as some of these things have happened, sort of reactionary to try to fix um, you know, pieces of the process. Um, but this is the same security, pro security clearance process that in 2018, and again this year, was placed on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list, right, of programs that are highly vulnerable to mismanagement um, or that need broad reform. Um, and it was placed on this list partly because of the backlog that they had on background investigations. So you asked, how do you keep from you know, having the process take longer. And it's taken a really, really long time in the last several years. On the high was like 715,000 different types of investigations in 2018 backlogged. Um, and general inefficiencies in the overall security clearance process. Um, so, so one side is sort of that initial vetting and the backlog and, and all of that. And, and the government is taking some efforts, has taken some efforts over the last several years to, um, to reduce that backlog. And I think it's down to around 500,000 now. Mm -hmm. um, and even that isn't, there's a lot kind of in that number um, that, that, um, that makes it sound worse than it is, but that's still a, a large number and, and things that the government's working to kind of reduce. Um, additionally, once someone is deemed to be trusted, then there's the need for a better process in place to identify whether that person should retain that trust and whether they're uh, or whether they may present an insider threat. One component of that includes continuous evaluation or continuous vetting, as the government is calling it, um, and this ties into insider threat programs. And this is something that assesses the security and potential vulnerability flags really in real time or near real time of individuals. So data collection from various uh, data providers um, that might flag um, potential, you know, might raise potential red flags on an individual who's already in a, a position of government trust. Um, the plus side of something like this is that can be done instead of conducting laborious periodic reinvestigations, which have to happen every five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. So you have a very long process. You have sort of field work being done as part of that. So it's taking advantage of um, the ability to use technology and data and, and data processing um, as we sort of enter a modern <laughs> century, you're modernizing your system um, to, uh, to, to catch up with that. It's interesting actually, because the Coast Guard a Coast Guard insider threat program is actually what detected Lieutenant um, Christopher Hassan's deadly plans, the ones that I mentioned earlier. Interesting. And it did, yeah, and it did so and was able to intervene, the Coast Guard was, um, and, and the FBI, before he acted on that. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is one component of just ensuring that those who are granted positions of, of trust aren't engaging in activities that, that might undermine the trust, put national security at risk, or harm individuals. And so, as, as you know, having signed into any number of government computers, you get that you know alert right away, know that your behavior is going to be monitored. Yep. Um, and that's what they mean, right? It's, it's not going to be monitored for, you know, you're checking this. It's The intent is not to get into the personal business, but it is certainly to um, have sort of searches done and flags and, and sort of algorithms um, that might flag a potential issue. And then you have to have someone follow up on that. You know, there's a, a person in the loop at some point that will kind of take a look at the information and see if it does present an actual red flag that needs to be acted on.
One of the, uh, I remember when I was in government and after leaving, one of the big challenges I think many people identified for clearance holders is that even though I had, so I started my career at the FBI, when I transferred over to the Department of Defense, it was as though I had not ever existed in the FBI's clearance system and DOD treated me as though I needed to have a completely new background investigation even though I had been cleared by the FBI. And that's not, a, you, my understanding is that's not a unique situation. That is that is how it operates both between agencies that should, you know, get along and be friends, but also within the private sector and the intelligence community. Is Are there reforms being done to address that gap? Because that would strike me as a big component of the backlog. Yes, yes, and yes. So fortunately, thank goodness, um, yes. Uh, I think the government has heard loud and clear that that is a big problem. They've heard it, of course, internal to government, um, but from industry. Um, and one of the initiatives, so, so in general, the government um, has this effort that it's pushing right now um, called Trusted Workforce 2.0. It's intended to improve the government's you know, security clearance processes and personnel vetting in general. Um, and so there's a, a number of different pieces to it, but one is what you're talking about, which is reciprocity. It's essentially creating a, a policy of ensuring personal vetting is essentially um, as, as reciprocal between agencies as it can be, but also looking at the, this issue of clearance in person. So rather than being cleared by each individual agency you're at, or as a contractor, each individual maybe um, for each contract or agency that you're working for through that, um, the idea is to have clearance in person where I am the cleared individual um, and each individual agency doesn't have to clear me. I am recognized as a cleared individual. And if I move from one agency position to another or from one contract to another, um, the, the clearance resides with me in person. And that seems like that's what it should have been all along. And it even seems like that's actually what it is, right? Because you're, I'm, I'm getting cleared based on who I am as a person, what right. I've done as a person. So why would that change um, based on the position that I have if, you know, the, the clearance level required for information in that position does not change? So that is a big part of the initiatives that are happening right now. It's long, long overdue, um, but, uh, but fortunately is is something that uh, that the government, both the executive and legislative side, are keenly aware of uh, needs to happen for efficiency's sake um, in the clearance process, let alone just being able to function in your actual job. So it seems as though you know, with that, um, with uh, the continuous monitoring um, and the something we haven't talked about, the, the transfer of uh, many of the security clearance functions over from the Office of Personnel Management over to the Department of Defense, there are a lot going on in this space right now. So I'm curious from your perspective, are there any areas that, you know, for example, that either the, the executive branch or I guess actually more importantly, Congress should be paying close attention to as these reforms and transitions go into place that either are potential areas of risk or um, areas that you think are deserve some of the most attention in terms of oversight? Yeah, uh, well, I think, you know, just when there's any kind of big change like this in government, um, there's a lot of uh, potential for for things to um, to fall through the cracks in transition or just be a challenge, right? And, and, and not being able to execute all components of the mission as the transfer is happening. The government's actually been working, so the executive order the president issued on the transfer, for example, of these responsibilities from the Office of Personnel Management to the Department of Defense for 
um, the majority of clearance holders, um, like, you know, 90 to 95% end up going through OPM. So the, the transfer of that, um, which was just issued this week, has been underway for, you know, a good year, year and a half of DOD working with OPM, identifying what functions should be transferred, personnel being transferred. And so those are the risks you're talking about, is making sure those functions move smoothly, making sure the personnel move smoothly. Um, there's also a, a DOD reorganization that's part of this um, announced in the executive order. So um, what was a smaller organization now becomes a much bigger organization responsible for not only these background investigations, but also counterintelligence and um, um, material security sort of roles in this big DOD function. So it's making sure none of those emissions sort of fall by the wayside. Um, and then apart from the transfer, I would say in the implementation of some of these policies, there's continually, the biggest question I get from people who've never heard about continuous evaluation and continuous vetting is the concern about privacy. It's the concern mm -hmm. about their individual privacy, um, you know, sort of big brother, you know, watching and what are they going to do with this information? How are they protecting the information? Um, and, you know, recognizing that's a, a concern that people have, um, the reality is uh, we have many, many entities have that information about us at any given time um, because of the world that we live in, right? So your social media accounts, your financial accounts, you know, information being shared and purchased by actors that are likely a lot more nefarious um, than, uh, than our U.S. government itself. Um, and then there's also protection of the information. So even if you trust that the government's going to do the right thing and only use the information to really get a red flag and you know, hopefully figure out whether it's a red flag or not and clear it before bothering you. And if they have a legitimate question, you have a legitimate answer and you know, it's an easy thing to resolve, um, is protection of that information that they're collecting, which both you and I are, are keenly aware um, with the data breach from the Office of Personnel mm -hmm. Management a number of years ago, um, where all of this background inf investigation information was um, was compromised and breached, um, the government's put in a number of pl uh, efforts, including uh, a national background um, investigation system um, that's intended to much better secure this kind of information. Um, but it's up to the government to, you know, reliably do that um, and uh, and maintain the trust of the very people that it is you know, giving its trust to, to protect the secrets. So one, one final question on that, beyond privacy is one of the things that struck me as a possible vulnerability to the continuous vetting, continuous monitoring program is the potential for adversaries to manipulate data that might be used as part of that. So, so you know, whether it be credit reports or social media activity or, or anything like that. Is there, has, in this process, has there been a consideration of how to address that kind of risk or is it, you know, we just have to assume this is a given and be able to address it as it comes up? Yeah, I mean, I do think that that is a that is a concern and a risk. Uh, the best thing that you know can be done on that front, because the government can't sort of you know control every piece of information that it's getting. It can work with partners where it's collecting information, um, and and work with them to sort of secure and bolster and and give best practices and and bolstering their system. But uh, the reality is that that's a danger you have sort of in any any component, um, I think, where information is being brought in uh, from the outside. I mean, you have that even in intelligence collection where you don't know, you know, you, you're trying to reliably identify your source. So that's definitely a challenge. Um, I think the, the biggest mitigation to that is just, 
it's not like that information is just being taken and someone being separated based on that, right? There's right. a human in the loop that at some point will be looking at that information um, and then assessing for the individual whether there's something about that individual um, or mitigating circumstances. Um, and if you start to have, you know, especially a number of people say, what? No, that wasn't the case. Right. Then, you know, hopefully you would have a system in place that could see those flags and um, see if there's something uh, outside uh, going on trying to influence the system. Well, Sina, thank you so much for, um, to use a very bad pun, clearing all of this up for us. <laughs> uh, this has been incredibly informative, and I'm, I have a million more questions, but I know that we both need to get going. Um, but So hopefully we can engage on this again sooner. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you again for having me. It was a pleasure.